by superstition. We live... Well, no. Instead, we ask God to bless the marriage and give whatever children... This series... I want to go today to the New Testament into Ephesians. It was touched upon a little bit in the sermonette. But I want to go back to Ephesians 4 and pick it up the last few verses here in getting the context before we get down to some key statements and crucial understanding of marriage and of weddings and of the plan of God. Let's go to verse 29 of Ephesians 4. It says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or uplifting or inspiring, helping, uh, that it may minister grace or goodwill to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And notice the terminology here, sealed, because it does talk in Revelation 7 and 14 about the 144,000 being sealed. <clears throat> and Paul speaks through his Gospels several times about the brethren who were sealed in such and such a congregation or whatever. So the sealing of the 144,000 began a long time ago. It began with the New Testament church, and it included some whom God makes clear will be in the first resurrection as part of the 144,000 in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11. The the, uh, faith chapter, we call it, but he lists quite a few there whom he says at the end of that chapter will be in the first resurrection and they will not precede us who come later. So they are part of those who are sealed. But in the series on uh, how exclusive is the church, you might recall we spent quite a little time on the 144,000 and showed a lot of scriptures indicating that the first resurrection consists of the 144,000, that they are the bride of Christ, and that they are currently, according to New Testament teaching, being sealed. They are not all sealed right at the end, but it is an ongoing process, and it will be completed at the end before Christ returns. So he's talking to those here who are sealed to the day of redemption. Now that tells you right there in one phrase that the sealing he is speaking of is of those who are redeemed. And I think that word is used there in Revelation 7 or 14.1 about them being the redeemed of the Lord, the 144,000. So the sealing that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians is of the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth to become the bride of Christ. I'm not going back into all those scriptures right now. Uh, You should have heard those tapes. Maybe you've forgotten them. That would be a good series to review. How exclusive is the church? I think there were nine in that series, and it imparted a great deal of knowledge to us that we did not previously fully prove or understand. And it has a lot to do with the end of this series of present sermons because it has to do with the plan and the purpose of God as typified by marriage and where it ends up and how all the holy days throughout the year fit into uh, marriage and the plan of God. 
So let's not grieve the Holy Spirit. And through God's Spirit, we were sealed. Now we'll find that that happened when the Holy Spirit came, was on Pentecost. And that's when the sealing began, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is, Pentecost pictures engagement, betrothal, engagement, where you're given the gift, the comforter, the help of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into that and explain it more later. So he says then in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, we are, he's saying here, a part of the bride of Christ. And all parts of that bride need to work together in harmony and in peace. Skip back to chapter 4, and let's pick up the first few verses here. I therefore, the prisoner of the eternal, he had become a slave of Christ. He had become, he belonged to it. And the marriage analogy fits as well. He was betrothed to it. And once betrothed, it's as good as marriage almost, just not consummated as yet. So he had willingly become a slave or a part of the bride of Christ. He says, I beseech you then that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Are <clears throat> called to do something. Called as guests of a wedding, we'll find. With all lowliness and meekness. Not pride, vanity, and ego, but lowliness and meekness. With long-suffering or patience. Forbearing one another in love. Allowing for each other's mistakes and weaknesses and problems. You know, if a, a married couple are to live together, they are not going to find everything about their mate appealing or good or uh, tasteful or desirable. And in fact, sometimes it's downright hard, like, down right hard to live with. We're all human beings with all kinds of foibles and weaknesses and difficulties. And if we don't learn as couples, to be patient and long-suffering with one another, we won't live together very long. Or if we do, it will be a constant war. <clears throat> now, we as a church represent the bride, even as we as individuals sitting here, many of us represent half of a marriage. And the analogy is the same, as we shall see very clearly here in a little bit. He's talking about our attitudes toward one another, even as a husband and a wife and their attitudes toward one another. Make allowance for people's weaknesses. Uh, as I look around, I don't see anybody that I recognize here that uh, I don't see some kind of weakness or foible or character flaw, or whatever, something about them that probably needs to be changed. Well, with the exception of one that I don't know, that visiting. Don't know him at all, so I don't see any flaws at all. But I've been around you for six, seven, eight years, most of you, and uh, I've found that none of you are Jesus Christ reincarnate, or Emmanuel, to, to use a better term. 
but then you found out I'm not either. <laughs> None of us are. <clears throat> Some of it shows worse than others, and I'm not saying I'm not standing here saying that I'm sitting at home analyzing and trying to find faults and problems. You know, those things just they just show up here and there. Now we can either fight among ourselves and put each other down all the time, or we can make allowance for each other. Give each other opportunity to change, to grow. And if we are offended or offend, we forgive and get over it. That's what lowliness and meekness with patience does. Pride, vanity, ego, and selfishness will lead to attitudes that will not change. Grudges that are still there, just beneath the surface, that surface just like that under times of stress. It happens between husbands and wives, and it happens between church members who are part of the bride of Christ. So, Paul is giving us a lesson here in attitudes that we need to have to work together to become a bride of Christ. So, with meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, love each other enough to put up with our foibles, whatever they may be, and give us opportunity to overcome and change them. You know, some men's sins come ahead of them. <laughs> you can just see them coming. And other people's follow behind. They're not maybe quite as evident, quite as obvious on the surface, but they're there nonetheless. And sooner or later, one time or another, they will show up. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, we are working toward a stronger and truer and greater bond with Christ day by day, aren't we? Because as the engagement period continues, we should be in preparation for a marriage, and not only that, a wonderful marriage. So an engagement period for us is a time to change, to grow, to overcome, to prepare ourselves in spirit and attitude to be married to the ruler of the earth and of the universe. He goes on to say then, not only do we have the goal of unity in the spirit and a bond of peace among us, but he says there is one body. And one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And he's given us all a grace according to the gift of Christ. So there's an encouragement here toward being the kind of bride Christ would want to have. Now let's go on back down to... Uh, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. It's a goal. It's a purpose to get rid of all these things. Not to allow them. Not to hear them. If someone is in that kind of attitude, we need to be a committee of one or a committee of how many of us there are to stop that kind of thinking, that kind of talking, and not put up with it. 
change the subject. Invite people to leave. Do whatever you need to do to ensure that that kind of relationship does not exist within the body of Christ. God makes it very clear to the ministry, and Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 5, that if there are those who cause division or dissension or trouble, to put them away, to put them out. Now, Israel, ancient Israel, in marrying Christ, was full of what? Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, murmuring, complaining, griping, grousing, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, unforgiving. And what did Christ do? He divorced them. And he tells the New Testament church, if you have people who are candidates to be part of the bride of Christ, and they simply will not change their attitudes, he says, put them from among you. He will not have that in his marriage. He divorced ancient Israel, which was pretty final. And he is only going to marry people who will respond to his spirit and his power, his love, and live together in peace and harmony, rather than backbiting and clamoring and evil speaking and maliciousness. That we simply have to put out. Now, if people won't put it out on their own, Paul instructed the church to put them out themselves so that they would not be a wrong influence in the body, the bride of Christ. He's been through that once and he will not go back there, brethren. So we put that away. And we have a God-given responsibility to put it away. You know, most of the times we simply don't have the courage, the temerity, the strength to do that. I tell people, let's change the subject, change the attitude, or this conversation is done. Thank you for the dinner. See you later. Or, I, wasn't, I enjoyed serving you dinner, but I'm not enjoying what you're saying now, so please go away if you're not willing to change your attitude and what you're saying. God holds you accountable for that, brethren. Do you understand that? Are we going to be spiritual cowards? God doesn't want spiritual cowards as a bride of Christ. But we don't want to be disliked. We don't want to upset people. Well, there are times when you'd better. Because if they're within that body that is engaged to Christ, and they're murmuring and complaining and griping and talking negative, they need to be shut up one way or another. 
Now, you can be gentle, you can be direct, you can be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, tactful. Read Philemon. There's nothing wrong with tact. But if tact and gentleness doesn't get it, then you get firmer. And Paul and Peter and those men got pretty firm at times. Peter told a self-styled candidate to be a part of the church, Simon Magus, to go to hell with his money. Now, Peter was a bit impetuous at times. But he got the point across, I think. He was talking about a man who was in the bond of Satan and wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. And he meant no words with him. So you have to be careful and pick your fools. Answer a fool according to his folly or answer not a fool according to his folly. Sometimes they're not worth answering. If somebody is a fool by the way they're acting, then, and you think there's a chance they might straighten up, then you try to help that fool and you answer their folly. But if they're just being completely ridiculous, there's a time not to even answer. Just say, go away. I'm not going to hear that. God is going to put His bride in charge of the family, which will consist of millions and probably billions of people in the millennium. And that is going to be a peaceful, happy family. And there is going to be on us to tap people on the shoulder and say, don't walk that way, walk this way. Now, when are we going to learn that? This is the testing ground to learn that. And that scripture there in Isaiah, I think it's 30, that says that, 29 or 30, is in the context of the end time, not just the millennium. And it behooves us to tell people that's not the way we're going. If that's the way you want to go, you go there. But don't do it here. Because we're here to be bound together, one body, one mind, unified. Purpose and a goal of a bride is to become unified with her husband so that ultimately they become one. Be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. All of us have been forgiven a lot, so we need to be very forgiving. But at the same time, we don't put up with clamor and backbiting and backstabbing and that kind of thing. If we do put up with that, we are disobeying God and we are displeasing our Father in heaven and our husband-to-be Emmanuel the Christ. That's where it is. That's what he's trying to get across here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit that sealed you to be among the redeemed from the earth when Christ returns. Chapter 5 then, Be you therefore followers of God as dear children, He's full of mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness, and His mercy endures forever. 
And yet at the same time, uh, he passes out penalties, doesn't he? Does he not chasten every son whom he loves? He balances tenderness, kindness, and loving gentleness with pain. And we cannot be unbalanced in that. There is a perfect balance to be had, and God has it. Some people by nature are prone to be very hard-nosed, black and white, and you do this, or I'm going to smack your behind or over the head or whatever, you know, they, their penchant is. And there's very little mercy in them. Some people are almost cruel. And some people are cruel. And on the other hand, you have those who want peace at all costs. And they do not have the sand, the strength, the backbone to stand up when they need to stand up because they want everybody to just love each other. And they want discipline or punish their children or chasten them as God does His. And they let the kids run wild because they've read psychology books, they've seen people around them, they don't buy into the things God says and follow through with it. God is a perfect blend of love and mercy and punishment. We tend to be unbalanced one direction or the other. We tend to be too hard or we tend to be too soft. And it's very hard for human beings to find that perfect godly balance. And Paul is talking about that here. He says, let's put away malice, grief, dishonor, meanness, cruelty... At the same time, let's be tender-hearted and loving. And followers of God, walk and do as He does. He is a perfect blend of it. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given Himself for us, and offering in a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Some of the sacrifices of old, of animal sacrifices, were sent up as a sweet savor to God. And Christ himself died, and that was the sweetest savor that ever went up. Because he was the epitome of the perfect Lamb of God and the sacrifice. No blemish in him, no spot or wrinkle whatsoever. Absolutely perfect. And when he died, it was a sad day in a way, but it also went up as a very sweet savor to God that his son had managed to live 33 and a half years without sin, without mistake, without profit. And therefore, his life was worth more than all of ours combined. His blood covers all our sins. What an incredible, sweet, wonderful thing that is. That all the mistakes, the wrong things we say, think and do, can all be wiped away in the blood of one being. So he was a sacrifice to God. Why? Was that something God needed? No, it's something we needed. God had, the Father had not sinned, nor did his Son ever sin. That sacrifice was only needed because of you and me. He wouldn't have had to come and die from Adam on down. We hadn't all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what it was was him giving himself entirely 
for us. Now, I'm laying the background for some things a little further down in the chapter that are important. So he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becomes saints. So he's talking about Christ, who is the perfect husband and the redemption that comes. And then he talks about sexual sins here because they do impact a marriage. If they are fornication before a marriage, they create problems for the marriage later on. If they are sex sins after the marriage occurs, they affect it then and sometimes forevermore. And sometimes dissolution is the only out because they really mess relationships up. That's why God uses that analogy of Israel as the unfaithful wife who went a-whoring among the nations, both spiritually and physically, because it ruined the marriage relationship. So anything that smacks of those things must be expunged from our thoughts and our actions. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, even thoughts of it, let it be, not be once named among you as become saints. If we're saints of God, then we have to put that kind of thinking out of our minds. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting which are not convenient or uplifting. Things that point to some of the uncleanness that he just talked about. And that's what the world is full of, is dirty, filthy jokes. And we need to avoid those things. That's what the TV programs are full of. If, if not outright fornication and adultery on the screen, then it is constantly the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the illusion toward it uh, in double entendres and so on. If it's not gay sex, then it's little references to it all the time. The sitcoms are full of that stuff. And God says, see no evil, hear no evil. We should not be watching that kind of programs, innuendos is the word I was looking for, that are there. So it says, for this know, verse 5, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, puts anything ahead of God, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So God is full of love and compassion and mercy, but he makes a pretty strong statement here that if we act and do and think, as Paul is describing, we will not be part of the kingdom of God. He wants, as a bride for his Christ, for his son, a pure, clean group of people, woman is the analogy. 144,000 of them. Now look, he sorted through an estimated 60 billion people who walked the face of this earth to find 144,000 faithful people. That's not very many. From Adam till now, they estimate around 50, 60 billion have lived. 
And out of that, he's been selecting here and there 144,000 total to be the bride of his son. Now, more can be in his family later on, but for the bride, only that many. Now, does that give you an idea he's pretty selective? It creates a problem in that he says that he calls the weak and the base. He doesn't call the mighty and the noble of the world. He calls people like you and me, who don't amount to much and aren't much, and have all kinds of foibles, weaknesses, attitudes, and problems. And he expects us to change and not be that way anymore, and not give in to our human nature and human flesh. Now, that's asking a lot, isn't it? Especially when we are prone to be that way. But why does he do that? Why doesn't he start with the upper crust? Why doesn't he start with the better people? Because if you and I change, it is only going to be through the Spirit and the power of God. And He will use us, who are nothing, as a witness to the world that He is something. That He can take that from under the barrel and bring it to spiritual life and ultimately to perfection. Now, that's quite a feat. So take courage that you're here. You weren't mighty and noble. You aren't to this day, nor am I. But we're working in that direction. And we have His Holy Spirit to call on to become that. It's not easy, but it can be done. So the filthy will not be in the kingdom of God. He's been through that once with ancient Israel. He doesn't want any part of it anymore. He's setting a pretty high standard. And he expects us, through his Spirit, to meet that standard. We shouldn't get down over this. We should be happy that we were among those that he did choose to call, that his power might be evidenced. And then go to work to become what we should be. Difficult as it is. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. I hope that I don't give you vain words and tell you how wonderful you are and how great you are and pat you on the back and speak smooth, soft, and easy things. Because that's what men do to curry the favor of mankind and to get them to be generous and give power and money and accolade to them. And isn't that what all the televangelists basically do? It's a power play and a money play. Truth to be told, we're here to cry aloud and spare not and tell you your sins, whether you like it or not. And most of the time, we don't like it. Because it hurts. It doesn't feel good. But brethren, it's worth it because if we will do what we're supposed to do, we're going to have peace and love and harmony 
And life everlasting in the kingdom of God is the bride of Christ Himself. People say they love Jesus, but I plan to live with Him, next to Him, close to Him, throughout all eternity. But I'm sure glad I didn't die a few weeks ago as the false reports came, because I have a lot of changing to do yet. A lot of overcoming. And I need you to overcome and change as an example to me so that I'm encouraged to do that. You're supposed to help me here. But then I'm supposed to do the same thing to help you. So we each have a responsibility, don't we, toward one another as a body of Christ and in Christ. So don't let any man deceive you with vain words. Because of vanity and false uh, adulation and perhaps adoration, people give you a false read on things. And then the wrath of God will come on you. I don't want the wrath of God to come on the children of disobedience. I want the blessing of God to come on the children of obedience. So let's look at this positively. Be not you therefore partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the eternal. Walk as children of light. Yeah, before we were called, we were out in darkness in this world, doing what the world did, thinking as they thought. He says, don't be that way anymore. For the Spirit of... For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the eternal. That's what we're trying to do in every facet of life, even in weddings. It would be easy just to go along, well, that's the way weddings are done, let's do it that way. No, we need to find what is acceptable to God. And I think the best way to do that is read all the scriptures about weddings and about the marriage of Christ, and then try to do it as much that way as you can and get rid of all the superstitious pagan practices and traditions of men. We did away with a whole bunch of them in this last wedding the other night. And we probably got to get rid of even a few more. I don't know. But we'll work on that, just like we do in every other facet of life. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That doesn't mean you go around telling everybody in the world that they're bad. You reprove them by setting the right example and living the right way, rather than going out there and partying with the world. That's not what we're supposed to do. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. We shouldn't party with the world. That's not where our friends should be. They don't think correctly. They think in terms of drugs and alcohol and illicit sex and all kinds of things that are not godly. And we shouldn't be out there rubbing shoulders with that. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. If we manifest the Spirit of God in our lives, then the light is there for others to behold, and that reproves them. Wherefore, he says, Awake you that sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. 
Now, that doesn't mean that somebody's in their grave. It means that they're dead spiritually. They don't understand. It says, wake up from being spiritually dead and walk in the light. See then that you walk circumspectly, carefully, that is, not as fools, but as wise. Now, somebody who is inebriated tends to stagger about and not know where to put his feet, and he can cause all kinds of damage to his body by falling over curbs and in manholes and just tripping over his own feet on solid, flat ground, for that matter. He's walking as a fool, not being in control. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. This has never been truer than it is today. Christ is selecting His bride. He's choosing out of those who have been called here at the end time. In the day of the final judgments on us, judgment is now on the house of Israel, the church. And the days of that final judgment being made are drawing pretty slim, pretty thin, pretty few. So we should be redeeming the time, not wasting it. How much time do we as individuals really waste? Reading things that are not truly beneficial, watching programs on TV that are not pulling us into the direction we ought to go, just frittering away time. Time that could be utilized to become what we ought to be. Now we need some downtime and some relaxation. And there are some activities that probably are okay. Need some downtime recreation, or I mean relaxation. Maybe I should be on the treadmill instead of on the computer. <laughs> you know? The computer has as much evil, or it's got more evil on it than the television does, really. You can go anywhere and see anything on a computer. Or you can just sit there and play solitaire and while away the hours. Is that redeeming the time or is it wasting the time? People get involved with these video games of all kinds. I don't even know what they call them anymore. And spend hours and hours and hours playing games. Some of those games are not of themselves sin. Some of them are because they have to do with killing and violence and all those things, like children's cartoons, some of the most violent things on earth, the science fiction junk, and all the video games that have to do with destroying and killing and fighting and hitting and boxing and everything you can name that is designed to damage and hurt and create problems. And people do those things by the hours. By the hours. Now, some of them are not sinful by nature. Some of the games you can play on are video games because they don't have sex and violence and hurt and injury and that kind of thing, although those are the most popular ones. But even the ones that are innocuous and might not be sin can become sin 
if you spend so much time at that that you don't spend time with your father and with your husband-to-be. Because then they become an idol. Because anything that takes our time away from our husband-to-be, that we're betrothed to and need to be learning to live in harmony with, becomes an idol. So sometimes it's just a matter of wasting time. And I dare say there's not anyone here among us who does not just simply waste time. Relaxation and recreation are one thing. But at what point do they become time-wasting? And we're not doing, as Paul says here, redeeming the time, saving the time, using the time for those things which produce something good as opposed to either producing evil or not producing anything. Just time spent. We are in the final days. The days are evil. There's a lot of evil happening on the earth, and it is going to speed up like a runaway locomotive in the next few months and get far worse than it is today. Far worse. Satan is intent upon killing all mankind. And he has influenced a lot of men who are intent on killing at least most of mankind and who are intent right now in destroying this nation. Some of the things they do look foolish, like those people are incompetent. No, they're not incompetent. They have a mission. And the mission is to destroy. That was foretold long ago when Isaac laid his hands on Jacob and Esau. And he said Jacob would be given the fruitful places of the earth. And Esau would resent until the very last. And at the end time would break the yoke of Jacob off their neck and bring Jacob down into calamity. Read that story of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And read the book of Obadiah. Because Edomites are posing as Jews. And those so-called Jews who are not really Jews at all are in charge of the whole banking and central bank system. And they are on purpose collapsing Jacob and Joseph in particular, America and the United Kingdom. It's happening before our very eyes. And they're going to laugh at our calamity, Obadiah says. Are these days evil or are they not? That calamity is coming like a freight train now. They're removing all stops. And they make noises about how oh, we're going to save the economy. No, they're not. They're doing it on purpose. And lying as they do it. Trying to keep you lulled asleep until you have nothing left. Satan is a master schemer, deceiver, and destroyer. And he is using men to destroy Israel and society and hopefully God's plan of salvation. That's the bottom line.
Are there UFOs? You bet there are. Are there demons masquerading as angels of light? You bet there are. I don't read anything about it, and I don't give them one moment of my attention. Because they love for us to be curious and to look into those things and see what they are. I know what they are. I don't want to have anything to do with them. If you spend time with those, you are opening yourself up to demon influence and possibly possession. Understand that. And when people try to talk to you about all these Nephilim and super giants and angel-human crossbreeds and hybrids and all that garbage, don't listen to it! Shut them up! Do you understand that? It's abominable. It's ungodly. It's satanic. When will we find backbone, brethren, and stop that kind of talk when it starts? It's unclean. It's unholy. It's ungodly. And it will lead you down a road to destruction. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let him stand up for God Almighty and not for Satan the devil. And be curious about what demons are doing. Science fiction essentially is demonism. Some of you have been hooked in the past on science fiction novels sci-fi movies and TV programs, those are an abomination before God, wallowing in demonism. A Christian has no business reading or watching science fiction. It is designed to get you close to and curious about Satan and demons. That's what it's about. Some people really get hung up on it. And it can lead to serious problems. I've seen it happen. Redeem the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the eternal is. Boy, does not the whole church need to focus on that one phrase right there? Understanding what the will of the eternal is. I listen to this and that, and I hear news of various of the churches of God. And I find that if I study the Bible carefully, I find some of the things that He wills us to do are not at all what some of the churches are doing. And as I study it, I find often we are not doing all the things we should be doing. So I'm not here to throw rocks at anybody else. But everyone who has been called into the church in the end time needs to understand God's will. The problem is everybody thinks they do.
And they all have conflicting opinions of what God's will is and what they ought to be doing. So are we all getting the picture or not? As Mr. Armstrong used to say, how could all these churches be right? How can, and I can say it today about the church of God, unfortunately, how could all these splinters or churches be right? It can't be. But each one thinks it is. And therein lies the problem, because that does not lead to changing anything or growing or overcoming. It leads to Laodiceanism and sitting on your rump doing nothing. we got a wedding coming up. Time's almost here. we got to be ready to marry Christ Himself. Now, is this a time just to be sitting around on our oars doing nothing? Or should we be redeeming the time and getting ourselves ready for the wedding? Man, alive, have you been around here the last few weeks? We had a physical wedding coming up. Activity going every direction, bustling around, trying to get ready for the wedding. Busy, busy, busy. No time for Laodiceanism. Day is set, hour is set, got to get things ready. People about going nuts some cases, trying to get ready. Bride and groom getting up tight. Families getting up tight about different things. Well, has this been taken care of? Has that been taken care of? What about this? You know, on and on it goes. And then the preacher saying, do it God's way all this time. and say, what do you mean? Well, I don't know. We're working on that. Stress level goes up. Well, we're out here at the end of the time. The wedding of Christ is almost due. We should be hustling and bustling about, getting ready. Not sitting back saying, I heard one group has been preaching. Well, it's the next generation that has to preach the gospel around the world as a witness. We're getting too old and too tired, so it's the next generation to do it. Don't understand at all that Christ said, no, I'm working with this generation. It will not die out before these things happen. He's not working with the next generation. It's this generation. To finish the job. <coughs> Herbert Armstrong said, I've finished calling, I've finished my job, now get the church ready. Or, in other words, prepare the bride. Get her ready. She still has spots and wrinkles and all kinds of problems. Clean her up, dress her up, bathe her, wash her. Get her ready. Hustle and bustle about. Because she's not ready. And he understood that very clearly. He knew there were serious problems, and he was too old and feeble to do anything about it. But that wasn't his calling. His calling was to call us. Our job is to get us ready. The ministry's job today is to get us ready. They have a plan in the feasts and the purposes of God. He says back here in chapter 4 that he set a ministry for the perfecting of the saints. The saints are the bride of Christ, and they need maturing and perfecting for the work of the ministry of serving the people, for the edifying of the body of Christ, the uplifting, the inspiration, the strengthening of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Unity, not disharmony, 
Not different ideas. Well, you can think what you want, but I'll have my own idea. No, we're supposed to find out the answers. And all come to sing, think, and preach, teach, and feel, and know, and understand the same things. Till we all become one in Christ. Some people like to think of themselves as rebels, I guess. And they want to have their own thinking. But a rebel is by definition someone who does not want to fit in. They want to have their own ideas and not submit them and listen and have everybody learn together and then all think and do the same thing. A rebel has an attitude. Remember the movie from years ago? Most of you, well, most of you are old, you probably would. Rebel Without a Cause. James, James Dean personified a rebel as an actor. He was against whatever, just because he wanted to be against, was the way he was portrayed. Rebellion is an attitude. A rebellion, or a rebel, is a rebellious person. And they're that way by choice. The attitude can change. There are some who will reject truth even if they see it because they don't want to fit in. For some reason, their genetic makeup, their nurturing as they grew up or whatever, they want to be different and apart, associated with, but not really part of. They do not want to be homogenized together in one faith, one hope, one baptism, one mind, one understanding. So if you prove them wrong in one area, they'll find something else to disagree about. Because they have a rebellious nature not because they found truth necessarily, but because they want to be different. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. God does not believe in rebels. He says, and I think it's Ezekiel 47, He will purge the rebels from among us. I might be misquoting that chapter. Rebellion is as witchcraft, in the words of God. Witchcraft. So if you want to be an independent rebel and do your own thinking, that sets you apart and aside from God. Now, does that mean, of course, somebody who is in that attitude will say, well, you just want us all to be yellow pencils. That's not the point at all. The point at all is that if we're working together to accomplish something in this marriage to Christ, and we as individual members of the bride, then we want to be close. What husband and wife wouldn't want to be close 
in their relationship. They're living together, they're sleeping together, they're eating together, they're doing everything together, basically. And when they have disagreements and quarrels and fights and hurt feelings, things aren't pleasant around the house. When mama's unhappy, nobody's happy. Or when daddy's unhappy, nobody's happy. It works both ways. When anybody's unhappy, nobody's happy. We want to be happy. But sometimes it's so hard for each of us to change those things that we need to change in order to have a harmonious, happy, peaceful marriage. Because we have our little vanities, our little prides, our little egos, our little selfishnesses that we're unwilling to turn loose of in order to please our mate. In other words, we rebel against the, attitude, the, the prospect of changing ourselves. So many people go about spending their lives changing the other one, rather than changing themselves. Now, yes, we ought to help each other and encourage each other and once in a while get on each other. But the object should be to get rid of the rebellion against harmony and come to learn to love and live in unity and peace and come through study and learning and lessons and trials and tests and troubles to be one, to be a unified body in Christ. That's his goal and purpose. Israel had her rebellions, she had her attitudes, her pride, her ego, and she would not submit to Christ. And it wound up in a messy divorce. He's not going to make that mistake again. He's going to look for people who are not rebellious, who are willing to learn to live in unity and in love. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unity cannot be had without proper knowledge. So we have to dig through the Bible to find out what the will and the knowledge of the true God really is. And the ministry is there to do that, to work at the perfecting of the saints and the work of the ministry and edifying till we all come to unity. Unity is nothing that comes automatically. It requires work. Disharmony, rebellion, hate, spite, malice, backbiting, Nastiness, grudges, unforgiveness come natural. Those things are so easy, you can do it without even thinking. But love and unity and harmony and peace have to be worked at. Till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our job... Our goal, our purpose, is to be just like He is. That's not easily done. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the craftiness or the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Well, let's go back to chapter 5. Back down to verse 18. 
And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It's easy to fill up on wine in excessive amounts. It's not easy to fill up on the Spirit of God. It's easier to pour yourself a big glass of wine or a beer or two or five and drink those. That's fairly easy to do, isn't it? But making yourself get in and read God's Word and pray, that's a little taller order. It's easy to drink whiskey, wine, and beer. It's hard to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, it doesn't say you can't drink. It just says don't drink to excess. But be not a little bit, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the eternal. I think we need, really, to find and listen to good spiritual music and less of this world's music. Because that's what it says. But we should be seeking that kind, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Those don't necessarily come easy, do they? In fact, it's hard to even find them. The ones that the world puts out are usually sickeningly sweet or wrong in some way in doctrine, and the church hasn't put out as much as it perhaps could have. But does the human mind naturally go to some of the stuff the young ambassadors did or, you know, whatever I can think of, or, or the hymns even sung, and just plug them in and listen to them? We've tried it here and there, and people have done it for a little while, and then they've gone back to whatever they really like. But shouldn't music, for the most part, reflect God in His character? When David wrote the Psalms, when he wrote music, he wrote the Psalms. And he put those godly words to music. Now, I don't have, or haven't developed, certainly, and don't have much of an ability with music. And for me to write music, it's, well, I'd have to have lots of help of some kind. David could do that. He had that talent and ability and gift. He was a song and dance man. Most of us aren't. We can barely dance and hardly sing. But maybe we should borrow from others who do have some talent and use some of those things and listen to them more. I'm not saying you can't listen to some of the world's music. Some of it's not so bad and some of it's okay. But at the same time, where's the balance and how much are we devoting that time to God and looking to Him in song. There's room for improvement there in all of us. Giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And I was going to get into verses 22 through 33 as the main part of this sermon, and now that it's ended, we're just now getting there. But I wanted to lay some background here and the overall understanding of what Paul is trying to get across. 
that we are the redeemed of God, we are candidates to be the bride of Christ, and that we need to be working together as a group. Now, each of the churches of God today has this responsibility. And each needs to focus on it, as do we. Now, we cannot at this point be in harmony with all of them. God is going to call a group together of those who are faithful and haven't bowed their knee to Baal here shortly. And then that group will work together in this kind of unity. So we only have the option of doing it among ourselves, don't we? Because others do not want to be unified with us, the other groups. So we still have to work on it, though. And the only opportunity we have is among ourselves. And we're going to find, as we get down into this and into some other scriptures now, that the physical human marriage is so deeply involved with the bride of Christ and has such meaning and goes beyond anything that we have ever understood before. And hopefully we'll get into that next week.